Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on November 14th by Joel Koretko. Today is the ninth sermon in our Fall 2021 sermon series entitled Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Greetings, Sardis Fellowship. Good to, to see you here online. I'm happy to be back up here. Uh, it's, it's been a little while. You might be wondering, uh, Joel, what's going on with your schooling? Because there's been an update every time I've been here. And so I'll just let you know that we're still kind of in limbo. Last time I told you uh, I was going to submit, I submitted my dissertation, and I'm still waiting, uh, waiting for a defense date. I think it should come in the next week or two. Uh, the date, that's not, uh, for when I'm going to do it, not necessarily going to be defending in the next week or two. So that's your update if you're wondering what's going on. And... Uh, yeah, it's a slow bureaucratic process, unfortunately. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm waiting there. But today we are going to be talking about this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy. In case you couldn't tell because of the wildly different time periods, skin colors, and historical features represented, these are all supposed to be the same guy. And so can you guess? Do you know do you know what story this is from? I imagine you probably got it. This is a guy named Saul or Paul, depending on what story you read. Here in Acts 9 and all the way in Acts up until chapter 13, he's called Saul. It's hard to know which name he preferred to go by, and so to be to be respectful, I usually just call I, I refer to him as Spall. No. <laughs> But I, th- I think it's appropriate that all this artwork about this scene from Acts 9 are so different in perspective. I think it points to something true about our understanding of this uh, very famous passage. And that is, we've often read it in very different ways. And honestly, we've misunderstood what is really being described. And that's a problem because this is one of our most famous scenes in history. In fact, I think it could be easily argued that this scene changed world history. Saul wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, and his theology has been the talk of billions of people over two millennia. So this, this, this story is a big deal. So what do we get wrong in this passage? Well, as an example, we just talked about this guy being named Saul. Some of you might think that Saul became Paul after this story about Jesus encountering him on the Damascus Road. That's that's incorrect. The text never says that. But that's assumed by many people. In reality, it seems like Saul was his name used more frequently when among Jewish folks, and Paul was a more Romanized name used among other ethnicities at the time. He could have had both of these names his whole life, or he took on Paul uh, when he started going out towards uh, the nations and bringing the message of Jesus to them. But I'm guessing some of you here might have thought that Saul became Paul on the road to Damascus. That's not true, and that's not the only thing we've missed here. So, let's get into the story to see if we can really get a grasp on this history-changing moment. Acts 9 begins like this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, both men and women, he could bring them tied up to Jerusalem. Acts 9, 1 and 2. So first things first, Saul's a bad dude. No mercy on man or woman. And like Rod mentioned last week, that's just really cruel. 
He's trying to kill anyone following Jesus from his Jewish synagogues. That's their, their form of church. But notice that Saul is not a vigilante. He's by the book. The high priest had to approve of his actions because Saul is a good, law-obedient Jew. He's passionate about his religion and wants to make sure the religious authorities agree with his actions. And they do. The religious authorities uh, of the Jews in Jerusalem agree that people who follow Jesus should be captured. And I find it kind of strange that Paul is going up to Damascus to do this. I mean, take a look where Damascus is in relation to Jerusalem. So that's my little drawing, the red line all the way up. So it's, it's, it's pretty far there. I know distances on maps are sometimes hard to grasp, but that's, that's about 135 miles. I think maybe as the bird flies, it probably is probably significantly further if you're going to take an actual road there. So that's essentially from Chilliwack to Kamloops. In your Prius, that's an easy, low-cost, and surprisingly spacious trip, but in the ancient world, that's no small feat. Damascus is basically right outside of Israel. And I think that's the point. Later in Acts, Paul himself says that, Because I was enraged at the Jerusalem Christians beyond measure, I was pursuing them even as far as, far as to foreign cities. Speaking here about Damascus. So Saul went out of his way, literally, to find and capture Christians, like way, way out of the way, to the other side of the border, you know? You could, you could, you could almost hear Saul murmuring, you cowards and unfaithful Israelites. You ran, but you don't even have the guts to stay in Israel. Our homeland. You're exactly who I thought you were. The fact that Saul was willing to go so incredibly far to arrest Jesus' followers from Jerusalem, it's, it's a big deal. There's a reason that Damascus always gets named in these stories. Damascus represents the farthest ends of Paul's pursuit of Christians. You're supposed to pick up from this that this is Paul's lowest point. He's willing to go how far? Not one city, not two, but all the way out of country because of his obsession? So now I want to ask you a question. Give this some thought. Why did Saul hate the followers of Jesus? Why did he hate this movement called the Way? And you should notice that the church at this point was not even called the church. It was the Way. Uh, it was a mini-movement within Jewish belief. But as we go on, I want you to, that question to simmer at the back of your mind. Why did he hate them? Why was he so passionately seeking to kill them? Let's keep going in the text. Now, as he proceeded, it happened that, that he approached Damascus, when he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter into the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Now the men who were traveling together with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice, but saw no one. So Saul got up from the ground, but although his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. This is it. The moment that changed history. Paul was at the door of Damascus, the place that represented as far as he could go, both physically and spiritually. He's at his worst. And suddenly, Jesus shows up. It's the Son of God solar flare that sends him reeling. So let me ask you a question. I want you to imagine someone who is deep in sin, doing something just utterly terrible. 
What's the worst you can think of? Saul, he wants to murder Christians, but it doesn't have to be that. Atrocious sexual sin, depraved greed, unrelenting ego and pride, hatred, self-righteousness, bigotry, racism, whatever sin you imagine someone being just up to their neck in, I want you to imagine that person, and now I want you to imagine the first thing God might say to them. And just as much, I want you to imagine the way, the way God might say it. What's his tone? Take a second. Imagine it. Got a a gut response in your head? Okay. Now let's pick back up with Saul flat on the ground. Okay, a light shines. I imagine this to be like in the movies when, you know, like a grenade or explosion goes off beside someone. There's the ringing and the slow motion and the light. And suddenly, a voice reaches his ears. Saul, Saul. The first thing he hears is his own name. That's not interesting. Or sorry, (laughs) that's interesting. And not once does he hear it, but twice. I mean, if I come up to you and say, How's it going? That's distanced, but normal. Now if I say to you, Tim, hey, how's it going? That's personable. But if I come up to you and say, Tim, oh, Tim, how are you doing today? That second Tim brings an affection that goes above and beyond our usual formalities in greetings. And that's the first thing Jesus says to the guy traveling out of country to kill Christians. It's not, hey, sinner, or hey, moron, or hey, failure. Jesus could rightly have said those things, but that's not Jesus. In another recounting of this event, we find out that Saul heard Jesus speak to him in Aramaic. He could have spoken to him in Greek or in Hebrew. Paul knew those too. But Aramaic was his native language. He grew up talking to his mom in Aramaic, playing with other Jewish kids in Aramaic, praying to God in Aramaic. And now Jesus is tenderly addressing him in just that language. Shaul, Shaul. That's the Aramaic. Saul, Saul. And Jesus adds one more thing. Why are you persecuting me? In other words, Shaul, oh Shaul, why are you hurting me? He doesn't say, Saul, you are hurting me, but why are you doing this? What has led you to this point to be so obsessed and out of your mind? How did you end up here? Shaul, Shaul, what happened to you? Now let's go back. How does this compare to what you imagine God's first words and toe might be when he confronts someone deep in their worst sin? What was, the, what was it that you first imagined? Was what you first imagined dripping with this kind of compassion and gentleness? Is that who Jesus is to you? Does he speak compassionately to murderers and God-haters? Do you? Well, Saul, he certainly did not recognize the tender voice of God in this heavenly address. And let's be real, it was kind of a statement out of left field, right? Uh, his, his response is, what we would say, I imagine, uh, excuse me, who are you? When did we get on these touchy-feely terms? And when did I do anything to you? That's a paraphrase. Uh, but you've got to imagine that something like that was going on in his mind. And here, here's where the sound gets sucked out of the desert. The wind stops. 
and you can audibly hear Saul's heart drop. Jesus says to him, I am Jesus. 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 You can be sure that just echoed in Paul's mind over and over as his brain began to overheat and error 404 uh, was going off uh, constantly in his mind. There could be no name in the world that Saul wanted to hear less but needed to hear more. He had traveled endless miles to blot out that name from existence, that fake and dead wannabe Messiah. Well, now dead men were talking, and that's a serious problem. Because that means the life Paul had given over to do what he thought he was doing in the name of Israel's God, all of it was misguided and wrong. I am Jesus. Those three words meant that he had completely missed what God was doing and who God was. He thought he knew who God was and what the Bible said, but he missed it. He missed it. But before he would have time to process any of this, Jesus commands him to get up and go to the city. And suddenly, as Paul snaps back to reality, he recognizes that the things of the world have become strangely dim. And for the next three days, he sits in Damascus, probably in silence, not eating or drinking, probably thinking about how he will be blind for the rest of his life. And above all, about how he has viewed both his faith and God in the entirely wrong way. He knew his Bible inside out, but he had missed God because God was with Jesus, Jesus was alive, Jesus was with his followers, and Saul was trying to kill those followers. He was opposing the God he claimed he represented. And now, sitting there in blindness, Saul needed to decide what he wanted to do with that fact. Would he claim it's a delirious vision? Would he claim that um, just like his traveling companions, uh, he wouldn't buy the whole thing. Maybe he ate something bad. Maybe it was satanic. Or, or, or. Sitting there, silent, hungry, blind, and in need of Jesus. So this story resonates with me at a, uh, a pretty deep level. Some of you know my story. I told it a long time ago from up here. It's got to be almost a decade ago. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing here, but for those of you who don't know or remember, uh, it was October 22nd or 28th. I can't remember what the police report said. It's 2008. I had a I had a hard drug problem, and I was uh, I had, I bought a great deal of cocaine that I was going to use on the drive home from Chilliwack to Aldergrove, where I lived at the time. I think I did all the drugs by the time I got there, but for some reason. I was on a back road just outside of Aldergrove. And for some reason, I was parked on the side of the road. And for some reason, my car suddenly wouldn't start. I tried and tried. And then, in this part, you can do whatever you want with. I get I was on drugs. But this is what happened, and I can only tell you what I remember. Then my, my driver's seat door is open. And like what felt like the force of a bulldozer is pulling me out of my car, around the back of my car, down and over a ditch, and into the forest beside the road. I'm pushed deeper into the woods, my legs getting gnashed and, and bloodied by the thorns. And then I went blind. 
And then I went deaf. I don't remember how long. All I remember is that I thought to myself, I am about to die. I could feel myself slipping from consciousness, and I was going to die. And as I went, I did the last thing I could think of. I begged God not to let me die. I said that I'd heard of this Jesus. I had been to youth groups. I begged, if this Jesus is real, please don't let me die here in the woods alone on drugs. I know I'm in the wrong, and I know I've ruined my life. Please just don't let me die. The millisecond after I prayed that prayer, my vision and hearing returned. The bulldozer force continued to push me through the woods, around to the side where there were no thorns, and back to the road. And waiting there, and I don't know to this day how, waiting there was a policewoman who called me an ambulance. I got to a hospital and they made sure that I was okay. Afterwards, all I could say about that event in the forest was that God had done something. God had saved me. I didn't know who God was really, but he had saved me. I got a feeling that I needed to phone uh, my friend Joe. Some of you might know him. He's the youth pastor at Alliance Church. And at the bottom of Promontory, at the Starbucks that used to be there in the corner of the Shoppers Plaza, Joe read to me from the Gospel of John. He told me about Peter, this loser who handed over his friend Jesus to be crucified. I resonated with Peter. I had messed it up too. And then he read to me from the end of the gospel. Peter had gone back to fishing, his trade. And Jesus, what did he do? He rose from the dead, and then what? Where was Jesus? Where did he meet Peter? He was on the beach while Peter was fishing, and he was making Peter breakfast like nothing ever happened. Jesus was the God who you can crucify, and he will make you breakfast. I broke down, and I said, I need to know more of this Jesus, and then something changed in me that night. I felt something within me change. A peace came over me like I had never known, and I decided to follow Jesus. That was about 13 years ago, last month. I tell you this story because I want you to know that roads to Damascus still exist. Like Paul, I was at my lowest point while on a road to Aldergrove, and like Paul, Jesus took my sight and gave me the opportunity to call on him. Joel, Joel, what happened to you? Church, Jesus still does this. He saves people who are too far gone, Christian murderer and drug addict alike. And look, I know it's easy for us to lose hope for some people in our lives, people who we think that are too far gone. But don't give up on the power of God's kindness. Don't ever think that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a powerless message. It is the sacred story of the one who saves us all. And don't think for a moment that Jesus isn't still knocking people off of their horses or cars today. Pray that he would. And pray is what, is what Paul did, what Saul did. We find that out in the next part of the story. Now there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias, or sorry, Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up 
Go to the street called Straight, and in the house of Judas look for a man named Saul from Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to tie up all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And we're going we're gonna to come back to that line. So Ananias departed and entered into the house, and placing his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized. And after taking food, he regained his strength. And he was with the disciples in Damascus several days. So, we find out here that Saul made a decision. He didn't write off the whole event. He prayed. And isn't it interesting that God didn't just heal Saul once he started praying and believing that he had met the risen Jesus? God could have done that. Jesus could have appeared to him again, but he didn't. Instead, he sent someone who was a follower of Jesus. I, th I think that's important. It tells us that Jesus wants to use us. He wants to use his disciples to be the ones going out and meeting people at their crossroads. In my case, I have my own Ananias, Joe, my friend. I knew I had to contact him, and when I did, he told me about who Jesus was, and there at Starbucks, I received the Holy Spirit. What about you? I'm not saying God is going to give you each of you a vision. He might. But what about being open to being present and around for those who are making a complete mess of their lives? What about praying to God to ask for opportunities to be present for those who need Jesus? The story tells us that Jesus wants to use us. I mean, he's not going to force you to do it. Ananias was given a choice, but we have, we have a choice too. And I think Ananias had his own mini Damascus moment here. He thought Saul would kill him. I mean, Jesus literally appears to him in a vision, and even still, Ananias protests. Saul's going to kill me. There's no way I'm going to pay him a house visit, and worse yet, get right up into his face and lay my hands on him. Do you not sympathize with Ananias here? Do you think you would have went? I'm not sure I would have. Go into the middle of a mosque and lay hands on their teacher. No. Head to the president of the Atheist Debate Club and put your hand on his shoulder. Nope. Go and pray for that family member who you could never, ever see following me. Hard pass. And what's at the bottom of our, my, and Ananias' response? Why don't we want to? Sure, there's fear, but deep down, we just don't believe that it could happen. Five minutes ago, Saul was coming to kill us, Ananias would have thought. People like that don't change. I've never seen God save someone that bad. Ananias needed new sight. He needed a new way of seeing just how far God would go and how just, just how wretched of a person God can save. And he got it because, Paul, because he put sandals on his quivering legs and he went. I think we'd all do well to swallow the lump in our own throats and follow Ananias to whatever street, house, building, meeting, gathering Jesus might be inviting us to.
Okay. So I asked you a question earlier. Do you remember what it was? Why did Saul hate the Christians so much? Well, we've dealt with the event of the Damascus Road, Jesus knocking Saul down, Saul accepting the vision, meeting Ananias and receiving the Spirit. We actually haven't dealt with the theology of the Damascus Road incident. We haven't stopped to ask the question, what's Saul's problem with Jesus? Why did he go to such ends to end the movement? Saul, Saul, why were you persecuting him? This is actually an incredibly important question. It's another layer of what it means to have a Damascus Road moment that is often missed, and it could be missing in your life. The next part of the passage helps us to start to answer this question. And immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. This one is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and were saying, Is this not the one who was wreaking havoc in Jerusalem on those who call upon his name and had come here for this reason, that he could bring them tied up to the chief priests? But Saul was increasing in strength even more and was confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Christ. Okay, so a couple of things to start. First, where do we find Saul? He's in the synagogue. The synagogue was a place where those who subscribed to Jewish religion and faith could go and discuss the Old Testament, among other things. And notice that Saul did not go out into the streets of Tarsus, where there were Greeks, Cyrenians, Cretans, Alexandrians. He went to the Jews. This is our first clue as to why Saul hated Christians. Saul was a Jew. And first century Jews had specific beliefs about how God was going to fix the world. You see, before Jesus ever came around, Saul, his family, his friends would all believe that a Savior was going to come. They believed in a Messiah. They believed in a Christ. That's just another way of saying Messiah, Savior, etc. They believed in a Son of God. Now, you might go a bit astray when you hear that title, Son of God. In the first century, that almost always just meant the King of Israel. It's a title that comes from the Old Testament. So you shouldn't immediately think, Son of God equals the second person of the Trinity, like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That, that's not what Paul meant by Son of God here. No, he was referring to the coming King of Israel. Why? Because, you see, Jews had a grand vision for what it would mean for the world to get fixed, and just how God would fix that problem. They believe this because, and hear this point, they believe this because their Bibles, the Old Testament, taught them this. This was a Bible issue. They had a view of what the Bible taught about the coming king and Messiah. They were waiting for the day that God would put an end to their exile and their low status as a dominated people. They were waiting for God to graciously wash away the Jewish people's sins and then judge the world through his Messiah. And yes, you heard me right. They were waiting for the forgiveness of sins. Now you might say, well, I thought we got forgiveness and grace in Jesus, and that those first century Jews were just all a bunch of legalistic law keepers trying to earn their salvation. Jesus is about grace, and they were about earning their salvation. Faith versus works of the law. Saul wanted to keep the law, so the Christians were bad and deplorable. Well, hold on a minute. If you read the New Testament carefully, you'll see that, faith, that the faith versus works debate is one that mainly occurs between non-Jews and Jews. That's not the debate at this early point in Christian history, because non-Jews aren't even recognized as part of the faith yet. That's the next chapter with Cornelius in this book of Acts. So Saul didn't hate Christians because they were about grace and he was about law-keeping. 
So why did Saul hate the Christians? Why was he persecuting them? If it wasn't legalism, and it wasn't that he wasn't expecting a Messiah, then what was it? Saul had read his Bible through and through. He memorized it. He taught it. It was the most important thing in the world to him because it was how he got to know who God was. And by God, he would be damned if someone dared to misrepresent the God of his fathers. The God of his fathers who crushed Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. The God of his fathers who permitted those distorting the truth to be put to death. The God of his fathers who promised a Messiah who would, and I quote, break the nations with an iron rod. Like a potter's vessel, he will shatter them. That was a promise for the coming king. Saul and most of the Jews read it in their Bibles and they believed it. And Saul was just acting like the coming king he was expecting by using violence and power in the name of God. He killed Christians because that's exactly what God's Messiah would do to those who go astray and lead others astray from his path. No one was going to tell Saul otherwise. He knew what the Bible said until he didn't. This Jesus fellow, a joke, a pretender, a pansy, off in the wilderness talking to poor people about handing their cares to God, about loving their enemies. Where was his power? Where was his iron rod? And worst of all, the most disgusting, blasphemous, and God-dishonoring of all, this Jesus willingly let himself be beaten, tortured, and held up naked and shamed on a Roman cross, only to die shortly after. Jesus was weak. And if Jesus was the Son of God, then that meant that God was somehow weak. And Saul knew. Saul knew that his Bible didn't teach that. Until it did. Because Jesus was alive and he appeared to Saul. And that meant Jesus really was the coming king. But that also meant that he had read his Bible every day and missed the point. Suffering, weakness, the path of the cross, that was just as much of who God was as his power was. So Saul had to change the way he read his Bible because he had missed what it meant to be a true faithful Jew. And this brings us back to what Jesus said about Saul earlier. At first glance, that might seem like a harsh statement about how Jesus is going to punish Saul for persecuting Christians. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus is pointing out that Saul needs to abandon his former path of abusing power to overcome those he saw as the enemy of God. And instead, Jesus is going to teach him the path of the cross. In other words, Jesus is saying, I will show him that he needs to bear his cross and suffer for my name's sake. I will show him the specific path of the cross I have prepared for him. And that is the opposite of what Saul believed the Bible said. To be honest, that's probably the opposite of what we often want the Bible to say. How often do we wish or pray deep down that God would just remove the people or things that are evil? Those people that are leading the world astray. Politicians, the government, liberals, leftists, fundamentalists, conservatives, racists, bigots, idolaters, the scientists, false gods, whatever. Whatever group you think is doing the most harm in the name of God, to, or to the name of God. Just like Saul, Jesus does not tell you to go and drag them away. He doesn't tell you to go and tell them off on the internet or try to gain power over them. He tells you this. I will show you how much it is necessary for you to suffer for the sake of my name as you bring my love and presence to them. 
So, do you want to see how much it will be necessary for you if you follow the path of the cross? I'm not sure I want to know that answer in my life. So maybe you're sitting here saying, yes, Joel, I get it. I'm all about suffering for Jesus' sake. I have embraced that path. I'm loving my enemies. Good. I'm, I am glad. Uh, we, we need you, and we need people like you to imitate in our church. But can I offer you a final challenge that is also found on this dusty road to Damascus? So I'm sure it comes as a huge surprise, given my completely humble and gentle demeanor, but I am known to be very opinionated. I like to be right, and it's easy to be because I always am. But I also do my best to make sure that my beliefs and opinions are grounded in reality. I've always brought this attitude to the Bible as well. I want to believe what the Bible says, and I, I don't care what anyone else has to say about it. You can hear a bit of my spalliness coming out here. Now, when I became a Christian, I immediately sought out what I thought to be the best, most accurate and precise reading of the text. I found a theology and reading of the Bible that I was certain was the most serious reading of the scriptures. I embraced it, taught it, preached it to anyone who would hear. I went to conferences based in this theology. I supported all the cultural and social causes um, of those who held to this theology. All the pastors and teachers I listened to were in this theological camp. They were my heroes, and I was all in. I, uh, and I, yeah, it was 10 years I, I embraced this theology. Then one average day, I woke up in the morning, grabbed my cup of coffee, and decided to do a bit of devotional reading. I got to a, a famous certain theological passage, Romans 9. I knew what it said. I debated others on it before, and here I sat reading it again. And then again, and again. And my stomach started to sink a little bit as I read it again, and again, and again, and word by word. I looked up every Old Testament reference. I prayed and read and prayed and read. I knew what my Bible said until I didn't. That morning began a two-year journey of rereading the Bible and ultimately coming to the conclusion that I was wrong. I missed the truth, even though I had read it every day. I thought I was defending who God was, but I wasn't. And please understand, I held this position for 10 years. And that was problematic, not only theologically, but personally and socially. It meant I had to admit to myself that I was wrong and also tell people that I was wrong. It meant disagreeing with some of my heroes on really important topics. Not core gospel topics, but really important theological and biblical concepts. I would no longer be able to apply for certain jobs I thought I would aim for. And honestly, I felt a lot of psychological distress. I saw some of the Bible in a totally new light. So I want to bring that possibility to you. I am not telling you that you need to change your views on the Bible today or you can't know what it teaches. The heart of the Bible is clear. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is clear. But I'm asking you if you've ever come to realize that you've missed something. Do you have it all figured out? Do you look at other Christians and say, how can you believe that? Don't you know what the Bible clearly says? Can I humbly ask you, Is it possible that other Bible-believing Christians might see something you don't? But they don't really believe the Bible. Okay, 
I'm not talking about people who say that we don't need to take the Bible seriously or that the Bible's untrue. I'm talking about devout followers of Jesus who see things differently than you. Is it possible that you are the one who actually missed what was right there in the Bible? We get stuck in our views and assume that other people might just not be as committed to reading and believing the text as us. But that's exactly what Saul did. He missed so much. He missed the heart of God. And even the early church, they don't immediately let non-Jews into the movement, even though that was what was taught in the Old Testament too. They should have known it, but it took God smacking Peter aside the head to make it completely clear. They also missed what was right there in front of them. So what I'm calling us to here and now is to lay down some of the, I'm going to use this term, it's a bit harsh. I'm calling us to lay down some of the arrogance we bring when we approach the Bible, especially when we we approach other people's views on it and how it applies to our lives. Come on, we're Baptists here. We're kind of known for this. It is very possible and probable that in some places, things that we are utterly certain about are actually wrong-headed. And the person beside us who we look down upon might have, might have the truth right there for us to learn should we humble ourselves and listen. And those of us who have never changed our positions on anything, I think we ought to be cautious and should definitely be extra careful to listen. I know I need to do this far more in my own life. So this is also a part of what it means for the, Damas- for the Damascus Road story have an impact on our lives. So as we go into this week, I want you to consider a few things. First, let's walk into this week knowing that Jesus still saves those who are just down the road of sin. And he does it with compassion. And I want to be, able, I want to be clear about this another way too. Saul was in sin, but please understand that he was a very religious man, way more religious than most of us. In fact, that should serve as a warning. I actually heard a story a week ago at the men's breakfast that struck me. A man said he went to church all his life, and until he was about 30, he never knew Jesus. He never truly repented. He learned all the facts, but he didn't have a relationship with God. Saul is so very similar, and it is possible that someone out here is in the same boat. It's something to consider in the depths of your heart. Another thing we can bring to this week is the challenge to be an Ananias. To listen to Jesus' voice calling us to be present for those who need an encounter with him. Scary places that need Jesus' compassion. And finally, we need to put the path of the cross first and humbly open ourselves up to listening to what others have seen in the Bible that maybe we've missed or misinterpreted. Honestly, this can be just as scary as going to a place where Jesus needs to be heard about. It's scary because it cuts to the core of ourselves and our views of God and his word. So, let's pray that we would have courage and faith in all of these ways that as we go into this week, we can find ourselves in one way or another traveling the same road as Saul. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for being with us. We ask that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us a vision of yourself, like Saul, where we would see things clearly, and the things we've missed, and the things we've uh, trembled at, like Ananias, we would find courage to not um, bow down to, but we would turn and we would worship you, and seek you, 
and guide others to you in our lives. And uh, we ask that you would do this in our hearts by your spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.